Staying in a hotel can be a vulnerable experience. You're often traveling, usually exhausted, sleeping in a new bed with sheets that may or may not be all that clean, and trying to get some sleep without thinking about the dozens of strangers above, below, and on either side of you. Most of the time, hotel visits come and go without a hitch, of course, but what if they didn't? What if, while you were settling in for some well-deserved shut-eye, someone was watching? Through a crack in the door, a hidden camera, the inside of a closet just waiting there. The 2007 horror film Vacancy plays with this fear of the dark secrets that might lurk in a seemingly hospitable place. The film, directed by Nimrod Antel and starring Kate Beckinsale and Luke Wilson, centers around an unfortunate couple whose stay in a remote motel finds them in the crosshairs of a creepy owner and a deadly snuff film ring. Though the film was inspired by stories of guests being spied on in hotels and motels, it isn't based on a particular true story. You can breathe a sigh of relief now, there are no snuff film rings trapping unsuspecting couples in cheap motels and making them their next victims, at least as far as we know. But unbeknownst to the filmmakers, decades before Vacancy was released, there was a motel where the guests were in fact being watched. Sometimes, even without knowing it, art imitates life. At a small motel in Denver, an untold number of guests were completely right when they felt that prickle of paranoia the eerie feeling that they were being watched. This is the story of a man with an unsettling hobby, the journalist he confided in, and a little place that would earn the nickname, The Voyeur's Motel. I'm Nicole Goodnight, and this is Insidious Inspirations. Gerald Foos was born in 1935 in Alt, Colorado, a sleepy farming community about 60 miles from Denver, to Natalie and Jake Foos. They lived a modest, comfortable life there, his mother and father doting on him as he helped them tend to the animals on the farm. Like any young person, especially one surrounded by livestock that went through yearly breeding sessions, Gerald became curious about the proverbial birds and the bees. But his parents were reluctant to discuss such subjects with him his mother going so far as to change her clothes in the closet rather than let even her husband see her undress. So, Gerald followed his curiosity out of the home, to the farmhouse next door, where his Aunt Catherine happened to live. This is where Gerald's story takes a turn from childhood innocence to a discomforting preview of his future habits. Every day for six years, Gerald would peek into his aunt's window and watch her undress, looking in from below the windowsill and just out of sight. He watched her go about her evening activities from the mundane to the salacious. Whether she was brushing her hair, making love to her husband, or organizing her collections of antique thimbles and dolls, Gerald was always perched out in the darkness, taking it all in. Gerald was a quiet boy who spent most of his time alone. When he wasn't taking care of his chores around the farm or spying on his unsuspecting aunt, he was reading books or staring up at the sky, lost in imaginary worlds. In high school, his world expanded a bit. He began playing football and began developing relationships with people who actually knew he was there. After high school and a failed romance with his first great love, he enlisted in the Navy. When he returned from his time in the service, he reconnected with a girl he had known in high school, Donna, who now worked as a nurse at a hospital in Aurora. There was an immediate spark between the two, a kind of mutual understanding, and they began a swift courtship that would lead to marriage and children. This was a woman who had seen it all, death, illness, incredible loss, 
and giving her heart to a man who sometimes liked to watch people in secret for a perverse sense of power didn't even make her bat an eye. They were partners in everything, and soon they would be partners in crime. Donna supported Gerald's dreams, even when those dreams took them away from their house and had them moving into the manager's quarters of a motel. In the late 1960s, Gerald purchased the Manor House Motel and prepared to finally fulfill his deepest, sickest desires. He hadn't purchased this property out of a desire to get into the hospitality industry, or even as a money-making scheme. No, he had bought the place with one goal in mind, so that he could watch as many people as possible without them ever finding out. The Manor House Motel was the perfect place for this seedy new chapter, a 21-room single-story motel with a pitched roof that allowed enough space for him to walk around upright on the attic floor. As soon as the deed was signed and the keys were in his hands, Gerald Foos began converting what had been an innocent motel, or as innocent as any roadside motel can be, into a voyeur's paradise. With Donna's help, he cut rectangular holes in the ceilings of over a dozen rooms, then covered the holes with aluminum screens disguised as ventilation shafts. In the attic, he built a carpeted observation platform where he could comfortably watch all of the goings-on beneath him, catching glimpses of his guests' deepest secrets and most intimate moments, without them hearing so much as a footstep overhead to indicate they had an audience. The process was painstaking and took weeks of testing. Donna laying on the bed of each room as Gerald stared down at her, testing to make sure he had the perfect view. Gerald kept a journal keeping track of his hidden habit, describing his thoughts on what he saw from his eerie little alcove. On November 24th, 1966, he documented the first couple he ever spied on at the motel in his inaugural entry. Subject number one, Mr. and Mrs. W. of Southern Colorado. Description, approximately 35-year-old male in Denver on business. 5'10", 180 pounds, white collar, probably college educated. Wife, 35 years old, 5'4", 130 pounds, pleasing plump, dark hair, Italian extraction, educated, 37, 28, 37. Activity. Room number 10 was rented to this couple at 7 p.m. by myself. He registered and I noticed he had class and would be a perfect subject to have the distinction of being number one. After registration, I immediately left for the observation walkway. It was tremendous seeing my first subjects, for the initial observation, enter the room. The subjects were represented to my vision clearer than anticipated. I had a feeling of tremendous power and exhilaration at my accomplishment. I had accomplished what other men had only dreamed of doing, and the thought of superiority and intelligence occupied my brain. As I peered into the vent from my observation platform, I could see the entire motel room, and to my delight, the bathroom was also viewable, together with the sink, commode, and bathtub. I could see the subjects below me and without question, they were a perfect couple to be the first to perform on the stage that was created especially for them, and many others to follow, and I would be the audience. After going to the bathroom with the door closed, she sat in front of the mirror looking at her hair and remarked she was getting gray. He was in an argumentative mood and appeared disagreeable with his assignment in Denver. The evening passed uneventful until 8.30pm when she finally undressed revealing a beautiful body, slightly plump but sexually attractive anyway. He appeared disinterested when she laid on the bed beside him and he began smoking one cigarette after another and watching TV. Conclusion: They are not a happy couple. He is too concerned about his position and doesn't have time for her. He is very ignorant of sexual procedure and foreplay despite his college education. 
This is a very undistinguished beginning for my observation laboratory. I'm certain things will improve. Things did improve for Gerald, at least somewhat. It was a mixed bag, watching the revolving door of strangers coming through the motel. Sometimes he saw something exciting, but other times he grew bored sitting up there for hours, drifting off to sleep on the shag carpet only to wake up when Donna brought him a blanket or a snack. She didn't care to watch much herself, unless there was something particularly exciting to look at, but she treated the attic as an extension of their bedroom. It was somewhere to spend time with her husband, to relax, and occasionally to have sex. When Donna worked at the check-in desk, she would send particularly fit and attractive guests to one of the special rooms that the couple could see from the viewing platform. It was a violation, but the couple didn't see it like that. They just saw it as another way to keep their marriage interesting. Some couples joined book clubs, some became swingers, and they hid up there in the attic, cozying up like teenagers at the drive-in and taking in the show. Sometimes Gerald was deeply frustrated by what he saw, face to face with all of humanity's ugliness and selfishness. After watching one particular couple fight and engage in dutiful, unhappy sex, his disdain seeped into a journal entry. This is real life. These are real people. I'm thoroughly disgusted that I alone must bear the burden of my observations. These subjects will never find happiness and divorce is inevitable. He doesn't know the first thing about sex or its application. My voyeurism has contributed immensely to my becoming a futilitarian, and I hate this conditioning of my soul. What is so distasteful is that the majority of subjects are in concert with these individuals in both design and plan. Many different approaches to life would be immediately implemented if our society would have the opportunity to be voyeur for a day. Growing frustrated with the lying, cheating, and stealing he witnessed from above, like some kind of angry god looking down on the mere mortals below, Gerald decided to put the honesty of his guests to the test. He left a suitcase with a cheap padlock in the closet of one of the rooms. When a guest checked into that room, he told Donna, within earshot of the guest, that someone had called about a suitcase they had left behind, with a thousand dollars inside. Then he watched from his platform to see what the guest would do. Break the lock? Or return the suitcase to the front desk? He tried this test fifteen different times, and to his dismay, only two people returned the suitcase to the motel. The rest opened the suitcase, then hid it somewhere they had hoped it would not be discovered. When he wasn't playing at the role of puppet master, pulling his guests' strings to see how they might dance, Foos was taking an array of bizarre sights, from the erotic to the troubling. He saw a man dressed in a sheep costume as another man called him a beautiful sheep boy. He watched a man enthusiastically take photographs while his wife had sex with another man in front of him. He gasped in horror as a couple allowed their dog to go to the bathroom on the rug behind one of the room's chairs. And then, he witnessed a murder. A young couple, a man and a woman, were staying in room 10 and had been there for several weeks. While the two stayed there, various people had come to the door to buy drugs from the man. Gerald was upset by this, but did not actually act until he saw the man make a sale to a group of young boys. Then, while the couple was out of the room, he snuck inside and flushed the remaining drugs down the toilet, disposing of them. It was something he had done many times before, and it had always gone off without a hitch. When the couple returned, however, he could see them fighting viciously. The man accused his girlfriend of stealing the drugs from him, as the fight escalated, he wrapped his hands around her neck and squeezed until she collapsed to the ground, unconscious. Then Gerald watched as the boyfriend packed a bag and left her there, lying on the floor. 
Gerald did not call for help, did not call an ambulance or the police. He was afraid to admit that he had been watching, afraid to explain how he knew the woman was in danger. Instead, he went to bed for the night. The next day, a maid found the woman dead. She had been murdered. The police came and went, but he never told them about what he had witnessed and would never tell a soul except his own diary. He wrote about the experience in the third person, saying, The voyeur had finally come to grips with his own morality and would have to forever suffer in silence, but he would never condemn his conduct or behavior in this situation. It was far from the only horrible thing Gerald saw from his platform in the attic, but it was certainly the most disturbing. It's entirely possible Gerald's stories about his years of spying, of creeping around in the attic and gazing out from the vents in his guest rooms would have gone to the grave with him. But after spending so much time looking at others, Gerald decided that he wanted to be seen. He wanted someone to know what he had done. He found a journalist, a writer covering sex in America in an upcoming book, and decided to reach out. And so Gerald Foos sat down, put pen to paper, and for the first time told someone other than his wife what had been happening just out of sight at the Manor House Motel. Up next, we learn more about Gerald Fu's story, the journalist he told it to, and some potentially glaring holes in it that might just call the whole thing into question. But first, a word from our sponsors. If you're interested in listening to the show ad-free and getting access to bonus content, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash insidiouspod. And now, back to our show. In January of 1981, journalist and writer Gay Talese received an unsigned letter delivered to his house in New York. He opened it dubiously, unsure of what awaited him, and found an anonymous confession that captivated his imagination. Though he didn't yet know it, the letter was from Gerald Foos. It began, Dear Mr. Talese, since learning of your long-awaited study of coast-to-coast sex in America, which will be included in your soon-to-be-published book, The Neighbor's Wife, I feel I have important information that I could contribute to its contents or to contents of a future book. He went on to confess his purchase of the motel and use of it for his unusual activities. The reason for purchasing this motel was to satisfy my voyeuristic tendencies and compelling interest in all phases of how people conduct their lives, both socially and sexually. I did this purely out of my unlimited curiosity about people, and not as just a deranged voyeur. He described the detailed notes he had taken on his guests over the years, and how he had compiled interesting statistics on each. For example, what was done, what was said, their individual characteristics, age and body type, part of the country from where they came, and their sexual behavior. These individuals were from every walk of life, the businessman who takes his secretary to a motel during the noon hour, which is generally classified as hot sheet trade in the motel business. Married couples traveling from state to state, either on business or vacation. Couples who aren't married, but live together. Wives who cheat on their husbands and vice versa. Lesbianism, of which I made a particular study. Homosexuality, of which I had little interest but still watched to determine motivation and procedure. The 70s, later part brought another sexual deviation forward, namely group sex, which I took great interest in watching. I have seen most human emotions and all their humor and tragedy carried to completion. Sexually, I have witnessed, observed, and studied the best first-hand, unrehearsed, non-laboratory sex between couples, and most other conceivable sex deviations during these past 15 years. My main objective in wanting to provide you with this confidential information is the belief that it could be valuable to people in general and sex researchers in particular. 
He refused to disclose his name or any other identifying information, but offered to continue a correspondence with Talese and even invited him to come visit the very motel he described and see it for himself. Presently, I cannot reveal my identity because of my business interests, but it will be revealed when you can assure me that this information would be held in complete confidence. Talese's journalistic curiosity got the better of him, and he pushed past the heebie-jeebies that came with the letter and mailed back a response with his phone number and a proposition that they meet in Denver. A few days later, a message was left on his answering machine, and a meeting had been set. Two weeks later at the Denver airport's baggage claim, Gay Talese and Gerald Foos first laid eyes on each other. Talese was taken aback by the man's friendly, perfectly average demeanor. There was nothing about him that would indicate the sort of things he got up to back at the motel the perverse fascinations he devoted his life to. After a polite conversation, Talese agreed to visit the motel and stay there for a few days. We'll put you in one of the rooms that doesn't provide me with viewing privileges, Fuz assured him with a smile. Before they could head to the motel, though, he needed one more thing from Talese. He had prepared a confidentiality agreement for the journalist to sign, stating that he would not publish any details about Fuz or his motel until he was given explicit permission. Once the ink was dry, the two men headed to Aurora, where the motel was waiting, along with Donna. Fuz showed Talese to his room as he regaled him with stories about his two children, neither of whom lived at home anymore, and neither of whom had ever learned of his secret. Then the two went to dinner, and Talese asked more questions about Fuz's voyeurism. He defended his actions, saying, There's no invasion of privacy if no one complains. After dinner, Fuz led Talese to the utility room. On one wall of the room, there was a blue wooden ladder. Foos warned Talese to be quiet and began to climb up the ladder. The journalist followed behind him. At the top of the ladder sat the door to the attic, locked in Foos' absence. He unlocked the door and beckoned Talese inside. There he could see a carpeted catwalk that stretched across the ceilings of each of the guest's rooms. Along the floor, light filtered up through strategically placed vents. This was the famous observation platform, the site of Gerald Foos' voyeurism. Talese joined Fuz on his hands and knees crawling towards one of the vents. Below, the two men could make out the figures of two naked people in bed together. As he looked, Talese's necktie fell between the slats and nearly gave their hiding spot away before Fuz spotted the danger and yanked it back up. Startled back to reality, the two made their way back down to earth and to the main area of the motel, the part that officially existed. It was at this point that Fuz introduced Talese to his writings, the Voyeur's Journal, which he would mail to him in portions over time. As the years wore on, Talese remained the voyeur's confidant, his pen pal of sorts. He would receive portions of the journal as well as occasional updates about Fuz's life. He received a letter in 1985 informing him that Donna had passed away from health complications, and that a new woman named Anita had become Gerald's partner in voyeurism. A few years later, in 1991, the couple expanded their business and their peeping to a second motel down the street called the Riviera. Finally, in 1995, after nearly three decades of crouching in the ceiling and staring down at his guests, Foos sold his two motels. His arthritis had gotten worse to the point where he could no longer comfortably climb the ladder or crawl through the attic. But his story was not quite over yet. In the spring of 2013, Talese received a rare phone call from Foos. The voyeur told him that it was time. He was ready to dissolve their confidentiality agreement and tell his story to the public. Talese would finally be allowed to print his take on their 30-year-long relationship. But why now? Why finally come out of hiding knowing the kind of reception he might get? He was getting old, and he wasn't sure how much time he might have left to tell his own story. He had another, more bizarre reason, too. 
He was hoping to find a buyer for his expensive sports memorabilia collection. As Talise discussed the possibility of going public with the story, he asked Foos how he might want to be perceived. I hope I'm not described as just some pervert or peeping Tom. I think of myself as a pioneering sex researcher. It's hard not to wonder how his previous guests might describe him, what words they might choose. Pioneering is unlikely to be among them. Talise published an article on Foos in The New Yorker in 2016 and followed it up with a book called The Voyeur's Motel. In 2017, Netflix released a documentary on the subject called Voyeur, which featured interviews with Foos and Talise. Finally, Foos had come down from the attic and stepped into the light. But all of this attention brought extra scrutiny and something threw a wrench in the story. The Washington Post conducted an investigation into the claims made by both Foos and Talise and found something perplexing. For an eight-year period, Foos was not the official owner of the Manor House Motel, though he was still making diary entries about his observation the entire time. However, Foos insisted that he was still given access to the motel during this eight-year period and had an understanding with the owner at the time. Unfortunately, that owner has since passed away and there is no one to confirm Foos' version of events. So, did he make it all up? Though the veracity of certain details has been called into question, there is plenty of evidence that Foos did at least some of what he claimed. The observation platform existed. Gaetalis saw it for himself and looked through the secret holes in the ceiling with his own two eyes. Though the extent of his voyeurism is up for debate, it's clear that Gerald Foos was up to something in that attic, and was able to sneak a look at his guests whenever he might have wanted. The Manor House Motel was demolished in 2014, leaving behind nothing but rubble and a general sense of unease for anyone who ever stayed there during Foo's tenure. But if he did it, what's to stop another motel owner with unsavory proclivities from doing the same? The next time you find yourself staying at a motel, settling into the unfamiliar bed and waiting for sleep to come, let your eyes drift towards the vent. Let your mind wander towards the questions you're too afraid to ask. Do you hear something? The whisper of someone else's breathing. Do you see eyes darting past behind the metal grate? And most importantly, are you really as alone as you think you are? This week's episode was written by Addison Peacock. Our host and narrator is Nicole Goodnight. Our editor and musician is the incredibly talented Danny Sweet. I'm your showrunner, Pacific S. Obadiah, and our producers are Tom Owen and Brad Miska. And this is a bloody disgusting show. For more information, visit www.insidious.show.
Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out, and we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now. 